0: EP Ag Chats, brought to you by AIR EP. Conversations that connect generations of experience and innovation in agriculture on the AIR Peninsula. The good bits, the bad bits, and everything in between. This project is supported by FRRR through funding from the Australian Government's Future Drought Fund. Hi, I'm Amy Wright, the Regional Agricultural Land Care Facilitator, or Ralph for short, from the AIR Peninsula region. I knew from a young age that I had a passion for agriculture, but I also had two siblings, so looked into career paths that didn't necessarily involve working on our family farm. Today I'm speaking with Brian Smith, a farmer from Nundri in the States Far West. In this conversation, I'm going to explore Brian's involvement with the agricultural industry outside of his own farming business. We will also chat about how he became one of South Australia's most Western farmers. Hi Brian. Can you tell me a little bit about what your farming business comprises of?
1: We farm in the far west, pretty much the last farm on your left when you're heading west out of South Australia, 40,000 acres roughly, which comprises about 15,000 arable and the rest is swamp, scrub and grazing. A mixed farming enterprise, we run a, about 1,500 door per ewes and we crop between three and four thousand hectares on an annual basis predominantly cereals we have dabbled a little bit in canola and a few legumes but our distance and the unreliability of the season sort of makes the wheat and the barley stand out a fair bit above everything else and the uh, the dorpers are just an easy add-on in the in the grazing country they're very low maintenance get them in and sell them when they're ready to go we're probably a little bit lazy on the sheep side. We don't tail anything. We do tag and nut the lambs when they're younger, but they leave the tails on. It seems to make the sheep grow quicker, and, and then we know they're as long tails, we know they're as. <laughs>
0: to put it into perspective a little bit, Brian, can you explain where your farm is located?
1: Uh, yeah, we're 150 kilometres west of Sojourner. All of our produce. Is minimum distance back to is 150 k's. All our fertiliser has to come out of Lincoln, which is about 600. Freight is a big issue out there, particularly in the current climate with fuel prices where they are, it's sort of, uh, you gotta be very mindful of that every time you attempt to do something.
0: You've explained a little bit about the challenges that you face with the distance to anywhere, I guess. Are there any other challenges that you face, being the distance you are from basic services?
1: Well, I guess we don't consider them challenges. We've been there long enough now that it's just the issues of where you live. Um, they're not really challenges. Machinery repair is a bit of an issue, but we've overcome that a bit. I guess we do most of our own repair work. We have good linkages with with machinery dealers that we can get parts reasonably quickly, and if we have major issues. We sort of get uh, service out of Woodner and and Sejuna. So, yes, it's it's sort of just one of those things that you have to put up with where you live. But, you know, we seem to be able to manage most of the issues that arise.
0: What brought you to farm on the far west coast of South
1: Australia? (laughs) We originally started off in the mid-north on a a family farm which was, was only 800 acres. There was my wife and I, mother and father, Then another brother decided he was coming home with just when it was dad and I working the farm and my wife, I was probably shearing for six months of the year, I ran a hay baling contracting business and also a bit of spray contracting work. Then my brother decided to come home and um, that was sort of putting a lot more, we just had to take on a lot more off-farm income type stuff and yeah, we were chipping away quite happily. And with my shearing business in the late 80s, the guy I used to shear with pulled out. And Back then there was about 170 million sheep in Australia and like every farmer had sheep and quite a few of them. And I couldn't get the number of sheep shorn that I'd committed to shear. And I ended up getting a couple of shearers over from the far west because there was a bad drought there in the late 80s. And it turned out that... Uh, while they are over, we had shearers from, from Penong and Nundru. While they were over there shearing for us, one of their fathers decided they are going to sell out. So it looked like a bit of an opportunity to expand a little bit. And so we went into a partnership with four other guys, one which was the son of the guy that was selling out, and he was to manage the property, and the rest of us were just going to be partners to a degree. But anyway, that, that didn't take long to go to shit, and... Um, the bank decided they were going to sell our farm at Laura yeah, to recover the debt. So fortunately, I was able to do a deal with another bank and he took on took us on in the whole lot. My brother and I then took on the farm in the far west and the farm at Laura. Yeah, that went on happily for about 10 years. And then we had the traditional family bust up. And so my wife and I decided to move to the west and he stayed at Laura. So we yeah, were able to keep all the land and that's how we originally got there. I think we um, we started at, at Nundroo in 89 in the partnership and by the early mid-90s, we'd run into... Well, there was some, certainly some issues with farming during that period, regardless with prices and diseases and poor seasons. By the early mid-90s, we were foreclosed on by the bank and um, my brother and I took it on full-time. And 2004, I think, my wife and I moved to Nundrew permanently and it became full-time Peninsula residents or Far West residents rather. So yeah, that's sort of a bit of a thumb sketch of how we, we got to be there. Been a good move for us, Nan.
0: Yeah, it's definitely an interesting story and I'm actually somewhat lucky to Recall, I think two thousand and four, and and Jalen coming into your daughter coming into um, my class at primary school. So okay. that, yep, that's right. Yep. <laughs> that's um yep. a little fun fact. I guess you've told us a bit about your farming journey and how, how you ended up farming where you farm today. What encouraged you to become involved on industry boards,
1: Brian? Oh, I guess a bit, a bit of a natural progression. When I was uh, when I was in the mid north, I was actually the secretary of the Law Ag Bureau when I was seventeen. Back then, Pursa were always the go-to point for any information regarding farming, any of the technical side of stuff. And there was a Pursa office in Jamestown, so we, which was only 20 miles away, we had a monthly Ag Bureau meeting, and most times we'd have an officer over from Perse, either talking about sheep or cropping diseases, or you know something that are always really interesting meetings because that was about the time that we were sort of transitioning away from the wheat fallow rotation into more of a lay farming rotation and, and then into the direct drilling system. We actually started on our farm direct drilling in about 1977. It doesn't sound much now, but our first patch, we did 15 acres with um, when spray seed first came out. We just sprayed it and sowed it, and well, that was just a bloody total revolution after when i was brought up there you'd spend your september school holidays on the tractor with a seven furrow plow plow on the country and then you'd spend your summer holidays sitting on the scarifier cultivating the, you'd work the paddock six or seven times before you'd actually sow it and you're just forever sitting on tractors tr- but so yeah for us to um spray a spray a patch and just sow it straight in was a, a real big change And it actually worked reasonably well. It wasn't brilliant, but it worked. We could see that there had potential. But with that farming system going from the fallow system, the issues that arose out of that, the um, rhizoctonia, the clay, the hard pans, there was just a multitude of things. And so we were constantly talking to Persa, getting them over, checking out diseases and and root disease, all sorts of stuff. We were modifying machinery, trying to get around it. So that was sort of, you know, when you think back, was it all in 100-acre paddocks here or 50 acres there? And it was all small-scale stuff, but it was sort of how it started. Towards the end of my time in the Mid-North, they, um, they tried to close the Laura Hospital, and there was a community uproar, as that normally is. And I actually got myself elected onto the board pretty early in my life, and um, from there we did board training. I learned a bit about governance and dealing with government departments. And we we're actually actually able to change change the role of the Laura Hospital that we actually turned it into a national model for primary health. So it was a really interesting time in that regard. So that sort of probably got me interested in the board level type stuff and you know, what you can actually achieve and get some things done and for the betterment of if you think it's for the betterment, it's yeah, it's worth the effort.
0: Yeah, for sure. So you've mentioned that you started at a fairly young age, Brian, and I'm sure things have come a long way with different aspects of of management and things like that. If you to start out all over again and start your journey being involved on committees and boards, what would be a piece of advice that you would give a young person starting out?
1: Uh, well, certainly don't be afraid to get involved. I can guarantee that when you get on there, you'll go home and you'll think, what the hell have I done here? I don't even know what they're talking about half the time at the meetings. And but that's that's something that you pick up, even um, with the experience that I'd had prior to getting on the ePath board, I got on onto that board. And for the first 12 months, they were talking a totally different language, talking about things that you don't understand. They've got acronyms and all sorts of gear. But as time goes by, you pick all that sort of stuff up. One of the biggest things is never underestimate yourself you're only dealing with other people and some of those other people think they're bloody smart, but when they start opening their mouth, they're not quite as smart as they think they are. They'll always end up putting their foot in it and you just apply common sense. That's really the the general rule. If you just apply experience and common sense to a situation, you're normally pretty much on the money.
0: That's some very useful advice there.
1: I was never educated. I, I was a typical boy back then that, as soon as I could get out of school, I would. Well, it was fourth year back then, but that's year 11. I failed year 11, which I was absolutely stoked about because nobody could make me go back to school then. So <laughs> I bolted, yeah, went home on the farm, went rat- rouse abouting and just doing whatever I could. So I wouldn't ever say that I've, um, I've had a formal education, but I've certainly, I reckon I've uh, been to the university of experience and I'm still going.
0: Yeah, for I don't sure. Think I'm never
1: going to graduate, but yeah, it's. Um, I don't think you have to sell yourself short if you don't have a degree.
0: Brian, you've served on the Sagat South Australian Grains Industry Trust Board for quite a number of years now. Can you tell me a little bit about that experience?
1: That's been a great experience. I'd recommend that to anybody that's got any interest in agriculture at all. If you get an opportunity to do something like this, it it is a little bit time consuming. You, You do get compensated for most of your time, but with all these organisations you go on, you've got to expect quite a volunteer-type component of being involved. The experiences that you get are just money can't buy. Being on the SAGET board, you get to meet the researchers. You get to talk to them firsthand about their research and you get, you're able to get them to justify their research. But also, you can actually put a farmer's perspective on the research that they're doing. A lot of these guys come up with great ideas, but they're totally irrelevant to agriculture, or, or can be, and if you can help guide them into a relevant path of research to help out agriculture, it's really quite rewarding, and most of the guys are passionate about agriculture, well, all the researchers you talk to are passionate about agriculture, but they're not actually in the game, so they don't fully understand it, although we don't influence researchers in what they research, with with SAGIT, we have what they call as an open call. The researchers have to come up with the idea. Then we get to read their application, and I've had a lot of tutoring from really good mentors in that regard. Like if someone gives you a ten-page application, it usually means that they really don't know what they want to do. But if they can't summarise it in a page or a page and a half, well, they're not really sure what they're doing. That's comes from a couple of good mentors. Yeah, just to be able to read the research and then if you think they've got the basis of a good idea, we, we go through our technical officer at, at SAGET to do that, discuss all the projects in depth and we can modify them a little bit and most times the researchers are happy to modify them. So you can actually have a, a great influence in the, not necessarily the outcomes, but the direction of research, yeah, what it's going to affect in agriculture.
0: Alongside your time serving on Saga, you've also served, and please correct me if I'm wrong, 11 years on the EPAF board and starting chair in 2019 on that board, plus another two years on the REP board sitting as chair. That's a mean feat in itself. How do you manage to fit these commitments in alongside farming, Brian?
1: Oh, uh, Yeah, that's a bit hard to say, I guess, but... Um... I really enjoy interaction with the other farmers on the boards. but like where, where we farm when we first went out there we had 16 farmers and now we're down to we're, we're the only owner farmers left there. We got um, got a manager there and another crew that live away and come just come up and farm. So you know we, we don't have a lot of interaction with like-minded people in the, in the district without having to travel 80 to 100 or 150 k's anyway. So we sort of tend to just plot away six or seven days a week farming but so when I get an opportunity to to get away and talk to other farmers and just get a break from the farm it's 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 yeah probably the thing that's kept me going on those boards for for the length I have oh, The transition I was nearly about to transition out of e, the e board because I think it had run its course until we came up with the idea of amalgamating the two boards, creating EREP. Mm-hmm. I yeah, really wanted to be involved in that process because I reckon it was going to be a great thing in the long term for uh, farming research on the Air Peninsula particularly. But in the 10 years, so I've been involved in SAGIT now for eight years, I guess, and EPAF, I was for a few more years prior to that. But the um, change in the way research is funded has pretty much been completely turned on its head in that time if farmers don't adapt to the change in the way that research is funded then we're going to miss out on having research in our patch and I think with the formation of reP that was the major turning point in getting um, research funded on air Peninsula GRDC are probably the major funders of any research now and that's their link with the federal government and the Amount of government governance that the federal government require in um, when money's passed out, they like to see how it's all getting spent and being done, and you just you need that project management, basically the oversight of the projects, so that you can um, justify the commitment or you know justify the government's funding. You, they, they like to see outcomes, they like to see um, milestones met proper accountability and yeah, proper government governance of all all projects now. And that's sort of where AIREP sits. The board of AIREP really don't get involved a lot in the research itself. They're more in the oversight of the research and we rely on the staff to tell us if there's issues with the research or milestones aren't being met. And when there's issues, then it's up to the board to work out ways around those issues. So it's it's not a hugely onerous task and you're know, just going you know, to set the future of where you think the, the board should be in four or five years time. And and it's a very fluid situation. You can a- adapt reasonably quickly. So yes, it's not the nasty task. That, it's not like going to the tennis club, AGM, and coming home as the bloody chairman or the secretary or the treasurer, the job that you don't want to do. Like All those mongrel jobs are sort of paid for and taken. You can get in, on the board of AREP and um, just do what you want to do, like try and guide the uh, direction of research in agriculture.
0: You've done a great job of, of explaining that there. I guess just taking it back a little bit of a step, how did you become involved with ePAF to begin with? I
1: think, Well, that was, yeah, I was always interested in what was going on at Minipa, but obviously being a new chum on Air Peninsula, I always went down to the Minipa field days just to see what was happening there, but, didn't take me long that they were sort of a typical air peninsula. It's a pretty good bit of dirt down there, but a lot of the ideas that came out of Minnipa back then sort of are just standard farming practices today. New varieties, root disease trials, all that sort of stuff. So I was always at the Minnipa field days, and that was back in the good old days where you could have a decent old barbecue and a few beers after, and most times I ended up just swagging it down there under a tree sometime. And, you know, you talk to the likes of Bruce Heddle and guys that, you know, sort of set EPAF up. They'd done a great job with, with that type of organisation. It was sort of more, more of the governance side of the MAC Centre whilst, whilst we were heavily tied up with the MAC Centre. We were independent organisation. But that was even back in the day when um, the research funding was starting to change then. So ePAF was able to get the research and get the funding for the research and that MAC was able to apply the research, do the applied research. So that was a great little synergy. But as time moved on, the governments, of all persuasions, only really ever gave poor old men a lip service. And I know they did try and get staff there, but they didn't think out of the box and people moved on and weren't replaced. It was getting, getting harder and harder to get not quality research, but um, leadership, I guess, as a... We banged on there for years about getting extension officers out of Minnipa, but we just couldn't get any traction there at all. And interestingly enough, now I think they're trying to get extension officers back at Minipur. So obviously the the wheels turn very slowly in government, as I've found out. But um, yeah, it's still a, a great asset for the Air Peninsula. As far as me getting on the board of EPARFI, it was just I had, it had had board involvements, and and like I said, too many people, I think think of it as getting on the tennis club or the footy club committee and it's not like that at all. So they, they're reluctant to do it. But having had a bit of board experience on the Laura hospital board, I was sort of you know, more than happy to give it a crack when I was asked and really happy that I did.
0: If a young person was offered governance and board training, would you encourage them? Is it something that's necessary to be involved with boards?
1: Yeah, I think it is It is necessary to give them some idea. There's a few pitfalls. They always tell you the worst outcomes you can have. And I've, like I said, I've been doing it for a long time now and I've never had any of those outcomes. Understanding how to read balance sheets and the financial side, I think that's probably the biggest issue. I'd certainly encourage them to get training, but they, they, have, they don't have to have training. On the saget board early in the piece, we were... Really strongly encouraged, I guess, would be the best way of putting it to um, to under, undertake the uh, board of directors course. A couple of other trustees did it and that put me off it completely. <laughs> it looked like yeah, it looked pretty bloody technical. Not, and I reckon um, one of them had to have three or four go to sit in the exam to pass it. Like the, the time commitment to do that was just way beyond what I was prepared to do. I was probably cocky enough to think that I. I understood what they were on about. And a few of the training courses I did, I thought, well, shit, I could have nearly done that. If you haven't had any experience and you want to just get a bit of an understanding of it, yeah, I think it is a a good thing to do. It's not the onerous task that people think it is. You can get a hell of a lot of satisfaction out of it. You can get to meet the researchers one-on-one and they are craving to meet farmers so they can get to understand issues that farmers are having.
0: Brian, for all the... Young up and coming people involved in ag, where would be the best place to become involved in something like REP?
1: The starting point would certainly be on the research committees. We have a low rainfall research committee and a medium rainfall research committee. Those committees are run by the REP board. Naomi gives them sort of office top support. They just sit around the table with agronomists and other people and they talk about issues that they're having and out of those conversations they come up with research proposals and that I think is a perfect place to start just to feel your way into the um, the governance side of it and you, you can certainly have a big influence over where research goes on air peninsula just through those two committees it's a great way to start as two or three days a year, and you get to uh, get to look at other people's farms, see what they're doing to help generate discussion. You get to talk with you know, specific researchers about the types of stuff you can do and start sort of teasing out problems. It's, that was always the best part about the EPATH board was the research review committee. That's when we were, you could really get your teeth into some issues that were nagging in, um, in agricultural production. Young people these days, I'm well aware, they're more into the technical side of getting information, looking at uh, Twitter and um, what's the other one they use? Anyway, that that type of information, we don't use that out there because we don't have mobile coverage, so it doesn't help much. But um, I know there's a lot of guys even my age now are regular on Twitter feeds. That's where they get their information from, so I, I assume that young people would see that this research has been done by Air EP and thinks, shit, who the hell are they? And, and I think probably um, getting younger farmers to field days, I think, is important, very important step. Big Fig, Buckleberry, they've obviously got a really good formula there that needs to be somehow looked at and worked on because there's plenty of younger farmers right across Air Penetra and groups like that. Well, Big Fig, I think, is probably a bit of a star in the on the EP of, of getting everyone involved in farming. And once you get the people involved and they know who's producing the results, then they'll, some of them will naturally move on into, um, into the administration and governance side of those organisations.
0: Coming to the end of our interview now, Brian, if you were to have your time again, what might you do differently?
1: Talking about farming, I guess, hey, are you?
0: Yes, <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> yep,
1: yeah. what would I do differently? I reckon uh, if I had my time again, I would have got off the small acreages in the mid north a lot earlier. I probably would have been a little bit more daring, I guess. I don't know whether that's the right word, but. Dad was always pretty conservative because he'd, he'd gone broke as well. He'd, he started off as a share farmer, coming out the railways as a draftsman. And he he was farming through the late 60s when they had wheat quotas and wool was worth about 10 cents a pound. Like It was almost impossible to make a living back then. And then the uh, person he had his share farming agreement with the degree to sell the farm, and she was happy to take very minimal payment just to pay it out But then she got hit by a car and killed and the um, beneficiaries of the mortgage, they they wanted their money. So that made life pretty tough there for a while. So dad was always really conservative about how we did things, which I guess in my youth, that brushed over onto me a bit. But yeah, once you sort of get out and spread your wings a little bit and see some of the opportunities that perhaps are out there. Like people say, there's not much opportunity, but there's still plenty around. So if you're not happy doing what you're doing, get out have a look where else you could go and have a crack and see you go. Like, you know, people talk about the land price. Well, it's all relative. You can make it work if you want to put the work in.
0: Brian, you've obviously faced some pretty tough challenges um, throughout your whole farming career. What gives you the drive to keep going?
1: Love of the job. It's, It's a great job. I've never been in farming for the money. I've just been in, I've really enjoyed the challenge. I've always said to my kids, if it's easy, everyone will do it. But it's not easy. It's, I don't think it's ever been easy. But it's always been challenging. And if you get it all right, it can be very rewarding. I think I've just always really, really enjoyed the challenge.
0: Thank you so much for your time today, Brian. Thank you.
1: No worries, Amy. More than happy to help.
0: For more information about AIREP and to get involved with your local research committee or receive our e-newsletters, check out the AIREP website, airep.com.au, for our contact details and get in touch. We're
1: always happy to chat.